Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Again, like Mike said, uh, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. And thanks for those who've already welcomed us back. Um, Mike, for that strange welcome, uh, especially. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, also, thanks to whoever mowed my lawn. That was a welcome surprise. Um, I got back. I was expecting to put Emmett to work with a flashlight, but uh, did not need to. So thanks for that. And um, thanks especially for uh, Mike, the other elders, for holding down the fort while I was gone, um, and uh, also for preaching, taking time out of their, their schedules, their, their you know, nine to fives to, 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 to ably and willingly open up God's word and to further our relationship with God's son. I've been even following along online, been blessed myself. I'm just so grateful for that, that we have men here at church who are, again, willing and able to open up God's word and to lead us further into relationship with God's Son. Well, if you didn't catch it yet, my name is Jesse, and I am the pastor here. I have the privilege of being the pastor here, and uh, I'm excited to be back. was away for a few weeks um, with Emmett uh, in, in Europe, teaching uh, a course to uh, about 16, 17 different students from 10 different countries, uh, walking through a lot of what we did this past fall, walking through the book of Jonah with them, and teaching them principles uh, of how to read the Bible rightly, to understand the meaning of God's Word, and then be able to communicate that meaning to others. Love that time. What a, what a blessing to be connected, and it's really us, right? We get to be connected through that to what God's doing in the rest of the world. Um, was doing that for two weeks. Then uh, we were two weeks, uh, almost two weeks on the East Coast um, visiting my, my side of the family and then um, some of Catherine's side. But, but really excited to be back today to start what's going to be the final series of our summer. A series that we're simply calling Questions. Because it's a series in which we're going to consider for the next six weeks, six of the most prominent questions that come up in spiritual conversations. Questions like, how can you have faith in God in an age of science? Or, or believe in him in the face of so much evil? Questions like, isn't Christianity too narrow? And what's so special about Jesus? And why should I care what this dusty old book is about? Questions that, that are most prominent today in spiritual conversations. We're going to focus on them because these are questions that are going to come up in conversations with your family and friends, with your kids and coworkers. Questions that, that maybe even you already have, if not will someday wrestle with yourself. So you'll notice we're going to step back from our regular diet of walking through books of the Bible and again consider six of these most prominent questions that come up in spiritual conversations. We'll land today in Romans chapter 1. If you want to open that up, that's where we're going to touch on at the end with uh, Paul's explanation of, of why this is even a question um, but again, we're going to step back from our regular diet 
just to focus in on these, these questions that, especially today, the question that underlies all the rest, the question of whether there is a God. Is there a God? Let me just say on the front end that this is a question you're allowed to ask. This side of the garden when, when God no longer walks with us in the cool of the day, this is a question you're allowed to ask. In fact, this is a question that you should ask. You should ask it. And should be encouraging others to ask. And that, dare I say, God himself wants us to ask and to have at the very forefront of our minds a question that he wants us to keep at the very center of our lives. Because the answer to this question changes and has the power to change and is supposed to change everything. That's where we're going to begin today, but before we consider this, again, first of these six questions, before we consider this question, is there a God, let's jump the gun a bit and just ask God to join us for the journey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're um, considering these questions for the people around us, for the ones that you've brought into our lives and will bring into our lives in the future. But we're considering these questions also for us. And in that, as we seek to grow in our ability to engage others, I pray that all the while you would engage us. That you'd engage our minds and our hearts, our intellects and our affections. And grow in us a faith so strong and so founded in the truth of who you are and what you've done and what you intend to do that it becomes contagious. For the good of the world around us and for the glory of your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, in May of 1897... The American humorist, the great American humorist Mark Twain, was in London finishing up a round-the-world speaking tour when he was trying to pay off some debts that he had incurred after making some bad investments. So he's in London when he received word from a reporter that a rumor had been started that Twain was deathly ill. And you can imagine the shock of receiving the news yourself and checking yourself over to see if it was true. But was quickly told that the rumor had at that point already grown to, to, be, to, to, to be the fact that, that Twain was actually expected that he was already on his deathbed. And some, one newspaper uh, reportedly already had published his obituary. The young reporter had been sent to follow up on the matter and to either uh, confirm or correct the accuracy of the rumors, 
to secure the next story on the matter. 500 words if Twain was alive, 1,000 words if Twain was dead. But when the reporter finally found Twain and told him what he was up to, Twain replied that far fewer words would suffice, that the young reporter need only convey that the news of Twain's death had been grossly exaggerated. What an understatement, right? Grossly exaggerated, says the man who reads reports of his own death. And yet our concern this morning is not with the question of whether Twain was dead, but rather with the question of, is God dead? Is there even a God there? And the gross exaggeration that sometimes is made of that claim. That was the question emblazoned across the cover of Time magazine, April 1966. A black background, three red words, and a question mark. Is God dead? But many today would say that Time's cover story back then that described the death of God in the American Academy was even more grossly exaggerated than the reports of Twain's death so long before. Because while no doubt there was a certain faction, a certain sector of the academy at that time attempting to bury God, other sectors, and most notably among them, the philosophy departments of our land, were rediscovering that God was very much alive. And this morning, I want to just walk into this question and point out a few of the, the places that, that they were rediscovering this in. A few of the places that in the American philosophical community, they were finding that God, rather than being dead, was very much alive and how those touch on the places that the Bible points us to and very much align. So I want to suggest at least four, four of these places that you can look, four places that you can point someone else to for showing them that there is a God and He is very much alive. Four places First, that you can point them to creation. You can point them to creation. After all, this is where our relationship with God begins and where we're often pointed to in the Bible. As the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Point to creation. That God remains the best explanation for the why, what, and how of our existence. For the why of our existence. That we even exist at all. That our world even exists. Because it could have been otherwise. Because he didn't need to be here right now. 
You don't need to be sitting here right now, not to say that you could be somewhere else as much as that may be what you want at one moment or not. Not to say that you could be somewhere else. You don't need to be anywhere. You are what philosophers call a contingent being. You are dependent for your existence on the existence of someone else. You need not be here, as much of a shock as that might be to some of us. You don't need to be part of the story. And life could have gone on quite well without you and me. Because we are not necessary. Again, we're what philosophers call contingent. We're dependent, ultimately dependent on something that is necessary. On what Aristotle, the great ancient Greek philosopher, called a first cause on the one the Bible introduces us to as God. That in him and his son we live and move and have our being, Paul would say. As he, the author of Hebrews says, upholds the universe by the word of his power. God's the best explanation for the why of our existence and also for the what of our existence. That at some definite point in the past, our world exploded into being. That one moment it was not, and the next it was. That it exploded into being, which likewise begs an explanation. Because nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. You know the song, right? That's child's play. Everyone knows that. Nothing comes from nothing. So where did all this something come from? It had to be from the source of everything. That at some definite point in the past, an infinitely powerful, strikingly intelligent, altogether personal being decided to create our world. You know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, this wasn't the consensus among scientists. This wasn't the consensus that our universe had a beginning. The consensus view was that the universe was eternal. It is science, though, that has confirmed the picture of the Bible, that it very much had a beginning, a definite point, and that has only been reconfirmed in in the the tightest way um, possible in recent years. A guy just speaking at uh, the 70th anniversary of um, the, the 70th birthday celebration of Stephen Hawking just just did this, just presented this paper, having already made the argument before. One of the leading scientific scholars of our generation made the argument that that no matter what is being on offer, being offered in the scientific community as alternative explanations, none of them undo the fact that our universe had a definite beginning. And if it did, it begs the question, who begun it? God remains the best explanation of the why, of the what, and also of the how of our existence. The how, meaning how our world has been ordered, and specifically ordered in such a way as to permit life to exist and to allow it to flourish. 
You know, that's not an easy thing, right? You moms know a little bit of what I'm talking about. Just think of how much it goes into your getting your kids to flourish, right? Fine-tuning nap times and snack times and play times and quiet times. And Lord, help you when you get to potty training. Well, how much more for the world around us? The world around us displays a level of fine-tuning that puts yours to shame. Because across the, the 19 or 20 physical constants by which our world is governed, things like the, the gravitational, the force of gravity, the gravitational constant, the strong and weak nuclear forces, the electromagnetic forces, because across the 19 or 20 physical constant by, by which our world is governed, from, from galaxies and stars to the subatomic particles from which they are made, these constants are so precisely fine-tuned as to defy human comprehension. You cannot even wrap your mind around it. A fine-tuning so infinitesimally precise that it has baffled both believing and unbelieving scientists alike. That you go read the, the atheistic scientists of the guild and they will say things like, you go to the evidence and you cannot help but admit that it looks like somebody tampered with the evidence. And again, begs for an explanation as much as the what and the why. That it's God who did it. Not that we shouldn't go after the science. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week, the relationship between faith and science. Not that we shouldn't do the work of understanding the mechanism, but understanding the mechanism never undoes the place of the mechanic. So for those asking the question, of whether there is a God, first point them to creation. Point them to gravity and what we know about it, that, that it is ten, one, it, is, it, is, it is digitized one out of ten to the 60th power, that one notch off and our universe would not be inhabitable that one notch less and, and, and the gravity wouldn't have been enough to, to bring stars and planets into existence, that one notch more, 10 to the 60th power, and all of life would have collapsed upon itself before life was even possible. Go point them to the, to the mystery of water. You know, it's a unique thing on our planet. We haven't really found it anywhere else. Maybe traces of it, but we haven't really found it. It is what makes life possible. It's what allows us to live on a planet that fluctuates between hot and cold. It's what, it's what, it's what cools the temperature in our bodies, allows it to stay at 98.6 when it's, when it's 150 outside, or, or stay at 98.6 when it's below 20. 
It's what allows life to subsist because when, when the hydrogen molecules in, in, in an H2O atom, when, when they slow down under the cooling process, it, it's the only thing, it's the only element that we know that, 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 that expands rather than contracts so that, so that because of the less density, it rises to the surface of, 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 a, of, a, of a lake or a river. It rises to the surface and allows life to subsist below. It's not an accident. Point them to creation, just like the Bible does. Second, though, point them to the conscience, to that sense of right and wrong that seems to be shared by all humans alike. Because if there is no God, there is no foundation for such moral absolutes and no foundation for moral value or moral values. They're either just byproducts of evolution or accidents of social convention, which may not sound all that bad at first, but it would ultimately mean that things like sexism and racism, things like genocide and infanticide, Things like child molestation aren't really wrong, but are just presently out of vogue. That our society might someday just slip right back towards slavery because somebody decides they like it or that it will serve the greater good. That's how Hitler built his empire. And the assumption that to serve the greater good, he would eradicate the Jewish people. It's like Richard Dawkins says, in a world without God, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. Not that a self-proclaimed atheist can't live a a relatively upstanding life. Of course they can. They can conform to standards outside themselves. They just can't provide a reason for doing so or a reason anyone else should do so. That the point is that without God, we lose the foundation for what that life is supposed to look like. We become the arbiters. And we lose along with that the basis by which to judge anyone else the Hitlers and the Stalins of our world, the basis by which we need to be judged. At best, it's all just green eggs and ham. And all you can say is that you don't like them here or there. You don't like them anywhere. I don't like them, Sam. I am. I don't like your green eggs and ham. But you can't say anything objective, anything definitive because you've undone the very basis by which you can do so. Our only hope of saying something more against Auschwitz or Buchenwald is if morality is grounded in God. That just like in the garden, God sets the standard for right and wrong. And you get all that goes with that. If that is true, you get all that goes with that of a God who cares about what's right or wrong, who will someday correct what's wrong and make it right again, 
who, who will do that, but you also get the responsibility that you must live before that God as the one who dictates what's right and wrong. Second, though, the point is, is point to the conscience. Because for objective moral absolutes and moral values to exist, they need to be grounded in the existence of God. And isn't that where they begin? Isn't that where it begins in the garden? When God gives his first command and sets his first expectations that his creatures will acknowledge him as the creator. First point to creation. For those searching and looking and asking the question of is there a God. Second, point to the conscience. And third, point to Christ. I'm not going to elaborate a ton on this one, though it's maybe the most important, because one of our weeks we're actually going to talk about what makes Jesus so special. Let me just say here that anyone trying to make sense of God and whether God exists should do so in part and has to do so at some point by making sense of Jesus. Because this backwater tinker from Nazareth who who spent a good portion of his adult life wandering the countryside of Galilee and was eventually crucified on a criminal's cross outside Jerusalem somehow so captivated the imagination of the world that we're still talking about him 2,000 years later in Sycamore, Illinois. And along the way, Jesus made some pretty big claims. And he did some pretty extraordinary things. And three days dead after a Roman crucifixion, convinced the world that he walked out of his grave. So point to Jesus. Because those trying to make sense of God at some point have to make sense of him. They can't just pass him off as a a teacher worth listening to here and there. They can't simply pass him off as an example of what to do and not to do over here. But have to at some point come to grips with the claims of Jesus and come to grips with the reality of the resurrection, as historians have been trying to do since it happened. So point to creation, point to the conscience, point to Christ, and then lastly, point them to what's to come. And this is a little different because it doesn't prove the point, but it at least keeps you on the question. That, that right now, if left to itself, our universe is headed toward a cold death of never-ending expansion. You know that? That's the current consensus view. Used to be that, the, that the, the universe was going to collapse back on itself. Now it's no. The, 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 the red shift is, is slowed to a point that, that uh, they don't believe it's going to happen. They believe that the universe is someday just going to fizzle out. Left to itself, it's just going to fizzle out. Sad bit is many of our lives will burn out long before the universe does. Point people to what's to come. Put eternity on their minds. 
because still something in all of us yearns for and dares to hope in a life after the grave. That's why we tell stories of holy grails. That's why we go on quests for the fountain of youth. Because deep down in each of us hungers for something more than this world has to offer. I've been by the bedsides of those who are passing into eternity. I've been by the bedsides of those who were passing not knowing their creator and those who are doing so in full knowledge. And this is what's on people's minds. Stalin's daughter tells the story of his deathbed scene. After killing 15 million people in Russia in the previous USSR. That even on his deathbed, the last thing that he did, no one really around except her and a few of his closest comrades, that the last thing he did was open his eyes and shake his fist at a God he did not believe in. Put this on people's minds. Point them to what's to come. Because again, isn't this where the Bible points us? Because our only hope of life after the grave, if there's more to this world, is if there's more to this world than meets the eye. Our only hope is if the one who made this world intervenes and saves us from the end at which we are aimed. Creation, conscience, Christ, and the hope or dread of what's to come. You could add to the list your personal confession. Point people to what God's done in your own life. We could add to the list God's covenant relationship with his people. That he hasn't been a God removed from the scene, but has been working in and among his people since the very beginning, since they first turned away from him. But after engaging the question being asked, let me encourage you that we ought to be ready to also engage the one asking the question. And this is where I want to end today. That as important as it is to to point people to creation and point people to the the conscience and point people to Christ and, and, and to what's to come, to to have a a personal confession of what God's done in your own life and to have that ready to share with others and to know what God's done in history with his covenant people. That as much as we ought to be ready to engage the question being asked, we ought to likewise be ready to engage the one asking the question. Which brings us to the passage I want to end with from Romans chapter 1. This is the beginning of Paul's great treatise of the faith in which he argues that we are saved by faith alone, by placing our faith in what God does for us, not in what we do for God. God forbid we would ever trust in what we do for God. But listen to where Paul starts 
Because before he gets to this notion that faith is the key to life, he says and explains why we all start out in death. This is what he says in in verse 18. I'll read to verse 23. He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they know God, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up, this is verse 24, in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is why we start out in death. This is why, Paul goes on to say, faith is the key to life. And this is why the question of whether there is a God subsists. Not because there is not evidence there to be seen, but because the evidence being there, we have chosen to look away because we don't like what we see. How often is this the way the conversation goes? I can think of even on my trip with three or four individuals that this is the problem. Not that it's not clear what's there or what needs to be there, that our only hope is if God is there, but that they don't like the full package. This is why the question subsists. Not because there is not something there to be seen, but because we don't see it because we don't like what we see. Verity on a trip, we ended up this last leg. We, we, we went from here to Ohio to New York to Boston to New York City down to uh, Pennsylvania where we caught up with Catherine's brother. In Pennsylvania, we had a day and I said, ah, well, what's one more thing on the agenda? Let's go to Philly. So we went into Philadelphia. Our air conditioner was broken, so Catherine decided to drive in the other car. Left me with the kids in ours. And it was a great trip. It was terrible. But I'll tell you what, one of the things that I was just profoundly impacted by was that Verity sitting behind me who I could barely reach to, you know, tap and get straightened up and put back in her place. Verity who was sitting behind me, the entire ride into Philadelphia was asking, where's mommy? Where's mommy? Is there a mommy? To which I continued hour upon hour after we got stuck in traffic to tell her all about mommy 
and where mommy was and how she could trust me about where mommy was and about how mommy was right behind her if she just craned her neck a little bit and looked at the car behind us. I explained everything. <laughs> Fascinating, though. We go to Philly, we come back, we leave the next day to make the 11-hour trip here. I had fixed the air conditioner. Catherine's asleep in the passenger seat. Verity is behind now Catherine, pulling on Catherine's hair saying, where's mommy? <laughs> Is there a mommy? Where's mommy? See, very similarly, when the question arises, is there a God? There's legitimate answers and legitimate discussions to be had. Quite exciting discussions in our, our current milieu with all the academic advancements that in fact are confirming the, the faith that we hold so dear all over the place. But at the heart of it, the question isn't about what we can't see. The question is about what's there to be seen, but we don't like what we're seeing. And to understand that on the front end, and to walk into conversations with that in mind. To know that we have suppressed the truth. We have turned from the Creator to, to worship the creature often, to worship ourselves. Will put you in a place as you both engage the question being asked and then seek to engage the one asking the question. Put you in a place of dependence yourself as you trust that only God can change the heart. And that in the midst of that conversation, the one asking the question is the one that needs to admit that it's not about being able to see. It's about liking or not what's there to be seen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a question I pray that would remain on our minds for the rest of our lives. Not because we continue to doubt your existence, but because we continue to press in and to ask and rediscover what's there to be seen. To share that with others, both what's in the Bible, what you've said to us, both what's in history, what you've done in our world, and from science, the fingerprints that you've left all over it. I pray it's a question that would be persistently with us till that question disappears for good and we get to live with that question no more. Pray you would be with us as we engage others who ask the question, as we seek to engage the questioners themselves. I pray you would do it for the honor of your Son, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My prayer for you today and as we go forward in this series.
is that you would find new impetus, new reason, new, new hope and joy in serving the Creator and no longer the creature, in serving the God who is there. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.